Hi guys and welcome to episode 45 of the Road CC podcast. So today's episode is all about infrastructure. So firstly, we are talking to Carlton Reed, who gives us information about the 15 minute city concept and why it has essentially been hijacked by a bunch of lunatics, let's be honest. Um, Simon also gives a really good breakdown of exactly what it is for those of you guys who may not necessarily be au fait with either the insane ramblings of conspiracy theorists or massively au fait with urban planning concepts. So thanks for doing that Simon, for clearing, making sure that everything's absolutely clear. And then Jack and Ryan speak to Kate Ball from Wheels for Wellbeing. So Kate is a disabled cyclist and it's really interesting to hear her thoughts and opinions and I mean opinion might not be the right word but her well-researched points on the challenges facing people with disabilities who also want to use regular cycling infrastructure so there's some really basic stuff that she talks about you know even something as basic as changing the names of bike lanes to accessible lanes and I think it's just really interesting to hear that point of view because it's not really something that we have touched on much within Road CC because there's so many times where, where you know when you think of people cycling you think people with disabilities can't cycle but that's just not true at all. So Kate does a really good job of talking us through the challenges that she faces, why she loves cycling um, and how it kind of brings benefits to her and her family as well. So it's a really good chat um so yeah here is episode 45 of the road cc podcast following protests against us in Oxford last weekend. Now, in 15 years of covering cycling and active travel-related issues, I'm really hard-pushed to think of anyone that has been more misunderstood, more misrepresented, and given rise to more misinformation than this one. So, here's a quick explainer about what a 15-minute city is and what it most certainly isn't. So essentially it's a concept that's emerged in recent years and that aims to make our towns and cities more livable by putting all the daily amenities people need, shops, healthcare, schools, libraries, public transport links, parks, everything like that, within a 15 minute walk of where people live. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's pretty much what towns and cities looked like before the motor car came along. Nice, yeah? Now, in Oxford's case, the terms used a couple of months ago by the City Council as it unveiled its vision for the future of the city, and that included looking to restrict motor vehicle going in and out of the city centre by creating a number of zones, so if you want to drive from one part of Oxford to another, instead of going through the centre, you'd go around the ring road, and that eases congestion, makes the centre more pleasant, etc. Now, that's not a new concept, it's something we see in any number of cities in the Netherlands and elsewhere on the continent, and also closer to the home, Birmingham has said it plans to adopt a similar model. And the idea is also embraced by the World Economic Forum. Now, the association with those last three words has been seized upon by the Tinfoil Hat Brigade, who see it as part of a global conspiracy by the supposed New World Order to control all aspects of our lives. 
And so the protest we saw in Oxford at the weekend wasn't just your lo usual local anti-LTN crowd, but they were joined by a number of people well-known in conspiracy theory circles as well as their supporters. So we had anti-vaxxers, we had climate change deniers, even neo-Nazis. They were all there, all present and correct. 15-minute cities, they claim, will force us to stay within 15 minutes of our homes, which simply isn't true. They draw parallels with the type of society portrayed in the Hunger Games films and books. And, shockingly, chillingly, the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II. And that horrific comparison with the Holocaust has left many people on social media in shock. But it's still one they trot out. Whatever they'd have you believe, a 15-minute city, or a 15-minute neighbourhood, if you prefer to call it that, is simply something that aims to make the place you call home more livable, more convenient, and more pleasant. No more, no less, whatever they say. Hi guys, so today we are joined by Carlton Reed and Jack to discuss 15-minute cities. Now, I did just have to hastily press the record button because we started talking about we started talking about it before, and it was it, it's all I mean it's insane, but it's absolute gold. So I mean, Carlton, you are probably best placed to kind of give a bit of an overview of this. So maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of firstly what a fifteen-minute city is, mm. secondly why everything has just gone insane around it. Yeah, it's the city of closeness. It's the city of where everybody would like to live, I guess. You don't want to live 45 minutes drive away from your work. You'd probably like to you know, walk to work, cycle to work. Um, and that, that's something that you would, you would just think, I mean, estate agents, you know, that's what they put on their, on their, their, when they're trying to sell a property. You know, access you know, is close to all amenities. And yet that has suddenly been weaponized by uh, the usual suspects, the culture warriors. Um, and, and it's just gone very, very bizarre. And no matter how much you fact check them, it doesn't seem to make any difference. And I think it's because it's, it's, a lot of it has come down from COVID lockdowns. So people assume that the global cabal of uh, socialist, capitalist, I don't know what, they're going to force you to eat bugs and stay locked to your local community because that's partially what they found with in, in COVID lockdowns. So the same kind of anti-mask people, anti-vaccine people, anti-COVID lockdown libertarians have now latched on to this relatively, well, in fact, completely benign um, urban planning model and are attaching all sorts of weird and, and wacky conspiracy theories to it. And I talked to the guy who developed it, Carlos Moreno, uh, who does have an interesting socialist background, uh, terrorism background. So that's maybe some, where some of the things are coming from. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and I just said to him, you know, what do you think of all these conspiracy theories that are now gathering around the concept you did for Paris, you know, in 2015? And he said, well, he's got this, this basically social media blocker. So he doesn't see a great deal of it. It's just when journalists contact him and say, do you know there's a lot of these people saying you're this? And he goes, yeah, I, I don't pay attention to it. So he kind of steers clear away from it. 
And unfortunately, I've got to, 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 to wade through the cesspools, the sewers of this <laughs> stuff on the Internet for, for, for you know, my reporting. And I get death threats. I, I get all sorts of stuff. And it's just like, where's this coming? I know where it's coming from, but it's totally, totally bizarre. So yeah. on that, we were trying to so for this conversation. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't know for sure. This isn't a fair but like we, we've we've been burning through local councillors who we've been trying to get on to speak to us. And like, you know, this is the Road CC podcast. It's, you know, um, not not to do ourselves down, but, um, you know it's not going to be it's yeah, not we're not, we're not, not joe rogan are we? around the world no we're not the joe rogan podcast and even then uh we've been turned down by numerous local councillors and as far as we know they've been receiving threats and mm-hmm. and like but how frustrating is it that the, so this guy carlos moreno he this isn't it's an urban planning piece of logic basically isn't it that like when you when a housing developer wants to build some a new when a new development goes up like there should be just amenities that are a short walk or cycle nearby and it shouldn't be that you know you've got no choice but to exactly shops like there's no like even you know it could be even something as simple as like oh well that this pavement's very narrow so we'll have to work to widen that or there should be a cycle route if it's like a mile from the nearest shop and this guy coined this term just for the use of urban planners, uh, and now it's spilled. Over. It, it, it strikes me as one of those things that spilled over, um, gone into the hands of people who don't understand the concept, and now that they're having to have it explained to them when they don't need it explaining to them. Um, it's and just... they, they, they've married it with LTNs as well. So that's yeah, where that's some the... of the confusion has come from. Yeah. Yeah. So they had the, there was this big protest last week in Oxford, and Oxford has been accused of all sorts of weird and wacky things. Basically, they're just they're just um, extending their LTNs uh, to a few other places in, in the city. They've already had LTNs; it had been controversial in in Oxford as they have been in many places. But the city council just quite sensibly want to extend them. Um, and then all sorts of conspiracy theory websites and 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 culture warriors latched onto it in December last year, and then. I'm not too sure how the 15-minute cities concept got latched to it, but it did get latched to it. And now they are complaining that, you know, you're being locked down, in, whereas all the LTN in Oxford is, you know, you, you won't be able to drive through the centre of Oxford, but you'll be able to get through to every other part of Oxford you ever want to go to in your car whenever you want to. There's, there's, there's no thing. But Oxford, to mollify people... Uh, who who didn't want bollards put in? They said, okay, well we'll put you know ANPR cameras in, and we will issue permits. So you know for a third of the year you can drive to your heart's content, and and and, and even the, the 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 filters they were going to put in were only during you know business hours. They were never you know at night. It was just you know certain hours of the day. But it's that permits thing that fired people up. It's like. I've got to have hunger style permits for accessing the cells, the quarters of my city. And then that's just been an accelerant underneath this. I think if they hadn't have put the permits thing in, which is something that they they thought was a nice thing to do, you know, for a third of the year, your local residents can use these things, you know, as much as they want without any restrictions. Without the permits thing, it wouldn't have been quite so 
you know, a, a bonfire underneath it. So they then had to go and do all of these uh, FAQs on websites. And then they, they did have this strange video. I've got to admit, it is quite an odd video. And, and I can understand why conspiracy theorists are latched onto it of this, the, the, these, these two councillors and, and in transport department uh, kind of explain it. But they're reading from an auto cue and they're very, very wooden. And it's been cut up in various ways by the conspiracy theorists to make it look quite clearly dystopian. They're, clearly they've got a chip in them, these people. Yeah. Like, you know, they're clearly robots. Exactly. And, it, and it's just, when you see the, the, the people and the views that are espoused on, uh, at, that, at the Oxford protests, in a lot of the, the online uh, conversation around this, it very quickly descends into genuinely there were no moon landings. You know, it's it's that kind of level of 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 debate. Chemtrails, five um, G, all of these things are just being put. David Ike, they're all in the mix, and it's like, and how do you disentangle this? Now, I, I've got two theories here. One, this could be terrible, and it could, as you said, because you can't get councillors to come on 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 this podcast. So it might make uh, councillors, politicians, planners get cold feet on these schemes because they know the abuse they're going to get. However, the other potential thing that could happen is because there are so many clear, wonderful better phrase, nut jobs, completely crackers, conspiracy theories going on here. And, and all the normal chances, the Lawrence Foxes, the Nigel Farages of this world, because they've latched onto this, the, the population that might have actually been in favor of protesting against these things might think, bloody hell, that is so wacky. No, okay, these schemes must be okay because look who's against them. So there's potential two ways of this, this could go, I think. It, it could be uh, a good thing or it could be a bad thing. I'm not too sure which way it will go. So we're saying like let them, let these people take centre stage and then the... You know, because that's what I meant. Like, so for example, if you're at a family dinner and someone's, they might generally follow a bit of the news, and the the subject comes up a 15 minute city, and, and someone might say, "Oh yeah, that's that thing where you, you're not allowed to, you know, you get fined if you drive to the other part of town." And then you're like, "No, it's not because that." So, that for those people to bit to understand that that's not what this is, then it might actually be a good thing that we've got people who don't believe in the moon landings <laughs> latching onto this. There, there is that possibility because it has got certain personalities have been attracted to it. You know, the GB News, you know, they've done a number of editorials on this, the Neil Olivers of this world. And most right thinking people probably don't subscribe to their points of view. And if those are the kind of people espousing uh, these kind of theories, they might just think that's not for me. I was going to protest. But I don't want to be a social and far right. You know, it's quite openly there was far right protesters, you know, from patriotic alternatives were at this march and were introduced, uh, interviewed by local journalists. Um, so there's all sorts of people you wouldn't normally want to be associated with, with your argument. You know, if, if, if you had an argument and they are the people who are backing it, it's like that probably isn't going to fly with the majority of people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting one because. In some, because I can actually see a relatively, I can see a moderate argument around it 
which is essentially nimbyism, where people just say, yeah, I really like the concept, but I want to be able to get to my door. But then suddenly if you're, if what you're saying then aligns with, you know, the Farages, the Lawrences, the, you know, the nut jobs of the world, are you actually going to speak up and be like, oh, actually, no, I don't like this. Or are you going to be mm-hmm. like, well, they don't like it. Is it, is it actually going to be fine because they're insane? So, C- yeah. Certain people, sorry, so certain people who are normally very, very vociferous on LTNs. When, whenever I mention LTNs, I get a certain number of people who I would consider actually quite sensible. You know, they're not on the, the lunatic fringe at all. You can have decent conversations with them um, and uh, many other aspects of, of uh, online uh, argumentation. You can actually, you know, you, my, my views probably align with theirs in, in, in many ways. Uh, they ha- those people have not been coming on to me recently. And it's almost like they're, they're actually keeping out of this argument. Now, they were the most vociferous people on LTNs, you know, two months ago. I haven't had a dicky bird from them uh, on these kind of subjects. It's like maybe they've realized they've, they've attracted a whole bunch of whack jobs to their, their argument. And they've now realized I, I, I better keep my head down here because people will put me in in the same kind of category as those people yeah i think it's it's an interesting thing about that kind of the people who are relatively moderate around most things and then you know fairly extreme about others and i think an interesting point that a lot of them try to bring up is that you know these kind of schemes would reduce footfall in shops at a time when high streets are already kind of struggling. I mean, do we, I mean, I don't, I mean, 15 minute cities, they're not a big thing yet, but there are some examples of places where that has, where similar elements have been added. So I'm thinking, you know, Walthamstow, places like that. I mean, is, do they have any, do, do they have any, right or do, do they have any kind of point in that or is there is it kind of nonsense i live in a 15 minute city i wouldn't be surprised if you guys live in 15 minute cities a lot of people are lucky enough to live in 15 minute cities in other words you've got a cafe nearby you can walk to the pub there's possibly a library within 10 15 minutes walk um uh, your doctor surgery you could walk to if you wanted to. So most people probably, I would say, if we're all living in cities, probably actually live in 15-minute cities now. It's just it's just a model. It's, it's not something that's not a diktat from above. It's not how to, to make a different city. It's just how to make the existing city we've got a little bit nicer and provide a little bit more choice. So you mm. don't have to drive for 45 minutes to get to a, a, you know, a mega supermarket. You could expand you know, like little Waitroses and little Tesco's, you can expand those so they become more local, which is what retail is actually doing that. So the big supermarkets are actually dying a death mm. in many respects. And we are going to these smaller supermarkets. So it's it's generally just what's actually happening uh, in, in, in urbanism right now anyway, in that we are kind of like, we are liking to go into the neighborhood. And part of that actually came, of course, from COVID in that we were, we were forced Yes, yes, we were forced to stay in our neighbourhood. And many people kind of like that and realise we well, can actually stay in, in, in your, your neighbourhood. You don't have to drive 
for an hour to get somewhere. And what this debate has brought out is, you know, there's lots of people who would quite like to drive an hour to a supermarket rather than going to a one, two minutes away. Mm. And that's when it starts to become really strange when you start debating these things. You genuinely want to drive for an hour to get to a supermarket when you could just get to one a minute away. Yes, I want to do that. Why do you want to do that? Because they fear people are going to take their cars away. And that's what it all... When you, when you, when you crystallize it all down, analyze it all down, that's what it is. You are taking my cars away. One of the videos uh, that I I had a, as a backdrop to my my 60-second explainer on, on these conspiracy theories was of uh, somebody who was relatively sensible two, three years ago, was doing just ordinary videos of, um, you know, train journeys and just, you know, completely okay stuff and was getting 5,000, 10,000 views. He started doing crazy stuff and he suddenly started getting 250,000 views in a day. And you can see him getting radicalized by the YouTube algorithm because mm. the more radical he talks about eradicating cars, he genuinely said 15-minute cities or C40 cities, you know, the cities around the world that are trying to make things nicer. He said, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. He genuinely said the plan is to eradicate all cars. When you say crap like that, the algorithm picks it up and gives you loads and loads of views. So an awful lot of this being, is being fueled by grifters who probably don't believe the stuff. Yeah. But because they get so many views on social media, and especially on YouTube where it's monetized, you'll get more money. So he's making lots and lots of money from his videos and they get angry and they get bizarre. And you can see them, see the progression. Now I looked at his timeline, it's like, wow, he was actually quite sensible. He was a, a, a TV presenter of, you know, very small TV presenter 10 years ago. And he's now got this YouTube channel, which has become much, much more radical over over a space of time and he's got to feed that algorithm he's got to keep the anger up and so 15 minutes he's done so many videos on on this subject and it's like i wonder why it's the money so yes I, he probably I, wants to drive but it's the money i always think this about these personalities who you know they will massively exaggerate you know like um uh, take on an issue and you wonder how much they actually believe mm. in, in it. Like it's, so you're, you're talking, I'm, I'm not going to name them, but certain media personalities who might dislike certain members of the Royal family. And it's like, how much does that actually yeah. keep them awake at night? Or do they really, or are they, do, you know, they're doing it because they know it's, it gets traction. And the same thing with this, because you've got someone who's pushing out all this stuff that they probably they may know is nonsense. I mean, who knows, but they probably know. But then at the bottom of it, you've got, like, I watched some of that. There was a, a very good local Oxfordshire journalist who, were, um, well, he got a lot of interviews anyway at those mm. uh, protests at the weekends. At the very mm. bottom, you've got these people who are just absolutely confused beyond belief about what's going on. And there was a guy saying that, uh, you know, I won't be able to take my caravan on holiday anymore because of this. Yes. You know? Yes, and, I saw that one. Yes. And, yes. and like, do these media, like, what is the line where, you know, I'd imagine, say, a hypothetical situation where I'm pushing a conspiracy theory on my YouTube channel 
Um, I just, you know, I'm saying it's entertainment. I don't expect anyone to actually believe any of this. Uh, but then somebody uh, on the basis of, of watching my, <laughs> the things I'm peddling on my YouTube channel does something terrible. And I wind up in court and I say, well, I, it's just entertainment. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't actually mean it and I don't intend the, it. The, the Alex Jones defence in in America so like yeah, uh, it's, it's actually an it's entertainment it's, he's not really yeah. Alex Jones yeah. is he when he's saying those things you're not supposed to take it seriously but this 15 yeah. minute city thing there are people because look, look, the other big misunderstanding I saw was there's people living in rural areas who may be 30 minutes from a shop um, mm. and they think oh this means what the government are going to do is now build lots of things around my farm and I won't be able to I know that's very extreme but there literally was people who thought that's how far this thing could go but um they're going to be they're going to be stuck in their very very rural location just with a quite expensive local shop presumably this will all die down and the cultural warriors and the conspiracy theorists will just move on to the next thing uh it just it just how much of it will will actually stick around and lodge in people's memories and they'll think this is the case. And, and the misinformation, the disinformation is what sticks around. So there's, there's all sorts of debates from urbanists uh, across the world of, you know, should we tackle this head on? Should we mock this or should we just let it fizzle out? And I, I thought about that, too, before I did my video. I thought, well, you know, should we just, you know, just po- be polite on this and explain? And it's like, well... <laughs> At the end of the day, these these are it's willful misinformation in many examples. They they are they are not just confused. They are doing this must be deliberate because literally, if you do if what they say they are going to do, which is the research, if you do the research, you very quickly find you know the actuality. You know it doesn't take long to find the facts on this. Um, So they are being willfully ignorant to for, for, for clicks for to to. To, to spread fear or what have you. So should we be combating that or just ignoring it? And I, I just came to the conclusion that I think I'd quite like to mock it and, and combat it because maybe that will stick. Whereas if, you, if you're just polite and just explain this, maybe that doesn't actually stick. It, with the algorithm, maybe you've got to fight the algorithm with another algorithm. Mm. I think it's it's an interesting one. So peek behind the curtain, my in my day-to-day life when I'm not presenting podcasts and writing about bikes, I'm a product manager, which means that I tend to deal with kind of technology. And there's a really good saying that we have, which is that if you only believe the analytics, then everybody builds a porn site. And it's <laughs> thing for conspiracy theories because you obviously can't do you know there's certain limitations on what you can't what you can and can't put on these social media channels so you wouldn't be able to you know go go down the porn route but if if people are only going to be looking at the the analytics and only looking at what's going to get the most views then naturally they're going to go down the most extreme routes because then you end up the most niche audiences where you can build the kind of strongest audience so it's a really interesting point um and i think yeah, you're you're right. It, ne- it needs to be countered and it needs to be mocked. Um, it's just, I think the challenge, the challenge with it is, and in conspiracy theories in general, is that it, it's rewarding people for being insane. Mm. 
And you're saying it's niche and it is niche in that it's niche. But at the same time, they're getting huge numbers on their views. Mm. So it's like, well, how niche is it? And how dangerous is this? And if, if you know, just, you know, the odd grifter is making, and I, my, my son's a, a YouTube, uh, I, I know how much they make from, from YouTube, is making a very, very good living at the moment from spreading these conspiracy theories um, to people. And there's lots and lots of people who are clicking. I was doing it ironically, of course, and just have a look at it. And maybe, maybe you know, some people are doing exactly that just to, to, to see you know, what the whack jobs are talking about. But an awful lot of people are clearly believing this. And 300,000, 500,000, a million views. You know, one of the ones with the like the hour Greta, this, this poor young lady, uh, 12-year-old in Oxford, who was clearly, uh, the, the, she was reading out a speech, her mum or whoever was her guardian beside her was, was almost lip-syncing beside her. And you clearly had written this or appears to have written what, 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 she was, what she was saying. You know, that the last time I looked, that had had over a million views, that particular um, uh, hour, Greta. So these things are niche, yet at the same time, incredibly popular. Well, on the on the LTNs, because obviously with the, the Oxford, a lot of it spilled over. Well, they, they were kind mm. of it was kind of we're angry about everything, protest. But um, the one thing I've seen about LTNs, and it's it's quite difficult to fight back with an argument. It sometimes is that they always come people who are anti LTNs and anti this, anti that. It always comes back to consultation, which is like, well, mm. we didn't, you know, we weren't asked about this, we weren't consulted. But how do you argue back with that? Because the, the way the, the the thing with the fifteen minute city and this idea that everything um, everything should be close by, um, you know, you don't have to drive everywhere. But then you look at the other side of it, and that people weren't consulted when their mm. local shops were taken away from them. They weren't consulted mm-hmm. when uh, the rail were all ripped up and uh, rail lines were ripped. You know, I think rail is arguably. You know, well, it is. It's it's not as good now as it perhaps was 40, 50 years ago in this country. Um, mm-hmm. Some t- the way I see it, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't consult the public because nothing would ever change. So how do you actually tell? Pe- how do you tell people? I'm sorry, but you're not the right person to be consulted on this because otherwise nothing would ever get better. Because that is the truth. Really? Well, apart from the fact that LTNs are the most consulted things ever, like I've got LTNs going in where I live uh, at the beginning of March. Uh, I was talking, uh, I was on like a, on a panel, like a local population panel, uh, three, four years ago. So the consultations have been taking place over many, many years. And every LTN that goes in, I guarantee will have been L, uh, will have been consulted to absolute death. Mm. However, people then who didn't respond to those consultations complain, and they say, "Yeah, but the council is just going to do it anyway." Well, it's like, but just go to their go to your local authority's website. You can get the consultations. You can get the questions. You can get this. There's, there's community panels. There's also there's a massive amount of consultations. And but you are right. So the point I would normally make was at the point that you made there, which was, but we were never consulted about mass motoring taking over our streets. 
You know, we were never consulted about these things, yet we are consulted ad infinitum with LTNs. So anybody who says LTNs haven't been consulted, it's like, Jesus, just go onto your local authority's website and just download the copious consultations over many, many years that these being put in uh, have happened. Um, now, what does tend to happen, um, which is also going to towards your point, is uh, they will be trials. So people don't like the trials. Um, and the reason they don't like the trials in, in many respects is because they almost know in, in their, their, their waters that if they close these roads off and it's successful, those roads won't open again. And they know the trials will be successful. This is mm. what they hate. You know, if, if just, just allow councils, local authorities to put these things in, they become super, super popular as soon as they're put in. People don't like change. People don't want these things to happen. When they do happen, they absolutely adore them. So on my viral video on the, the LTN, on the 15 Minute Cities, I just showed the example of Newcastle, which is the, it's the one I wheel out frequently, A, because I live here, B, because it's a really good example. Uh, that is Newcastle's Northumberland Street. That in the 19, well, for forever, it's been the Great North Road. It was the A1 from Edinburgh to, to, to London. It was a phenomenally busy shopping street, yet it was dystopian because it had buses and cars and it was, it was blown awful. And they, the, the local authority over a number of years gradually blocked it off. Till now, it's a beautiful shopping street, completely pedestrianised. Uh, it, it's one of the, the highest square metre retail uh, locations in the UK outside of Oxford Street, outside of London, uh, because it's so incredibly popular. If you went to the population of Newcastle now and said, should we bring Northumberland Street back into cars? People would genuinely laugh and think you are mad because they've seen how nice it is and they would never want to go back to dystopia of having cars coming through. I guess, I guess and it's the same point. with all these other schemes. If, you, if you'd have asked them before they made that, if you'd have done a referendum... Mm -hmm. Every yes. single person before they 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 probably would have said no. Just because, like you said, people yes. don't like change. So how do you yes. convince people that we can't have we can't have a referendum? We can't ask every single person on every issue because most like it's it's maybe this sounds a bit pig headed, arrogant, whatever. But some people, unfortunately, they just don't uh, they 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 haven't got enough of a grasp on an issue in order to understand. Uh, that's a, how do you explain that to people? They're like, we're doing this for your, we're doing this for your own good in a way, you know. Um, how do you, I, I how think, do you I, people that this you, you are you are slightly playing into their hands there because it, Maybe, I said yeah. they were consulted. People are yeah. frequently consulted, and of course, you do that have the absolute acid test, which is well, if you if you hate these things so much, vote out the politicians who bring them in. You mentioned before Waltham Forest. Uh, Clyde Lokes voted again. All the people who you know brought in Waltham Forest's wonderful um, uh, LTNs and all sorts of other things, uh, the cycle lanes, they were voted in with thumping majorities. So when people say it's undemocratic for us to put these in, it's like, well, okay, vote the politicians out who are doing it. And when people like Dave Curtin, who's one of the the, the kind of like the ringleaders in London against LTNs, when he went up um 
uh, as a mayoral uh, candidate, he, I think he, he might not have lost his deposit, but he got like under 1% of the, the, the vote. So, you know, anybody who stands on an anti-LTN platform, I, I haven't seen any of them getting anywhere near, you know, decent numbers. They are always, always uh, probably the last party. LTNs are phenomenally popular when you get, when it comes to the, the vote. So people actually, I wouldn't say you shouldn't ask them. It's fine to ask them because probably the majority will want, if you phrase it in the right way, do mm. you want nicer streets? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, tick. This is how we get there. Oh, yeah, okay, do it. If you ask them, should we ban all cars? Oh, no, don't do that. So mm. it does depend how you ask uh, mm. when, when, you, when you do these things. But uh, who wouldn't want nicer streets? That's a no-brainer. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Ryan here from uh, the RoadCC News team, and I'm here with RoadCC editor Jack. Um, Hello. And we're uh, today joined by Kate Ball, who works for the charity Wheels for Wellbeing, uh, which is a charity which aims to remove uh, barriers to cycling. Uh, it exists. Uh, to enhance disabled people's lives by ensuring that anyone can access the physical, emotional, practical and social benefits of cycling. And since the charity's foundation in 2007, it has worked with thousands of disabled children and adults who face barriers to taking part in any physical activity, giving them the right equipment, support and environment to fully enjoy the wonders of cycling. So it's great to have you with us, Kate. Thank you. It's lovely to be here today. So... Uh, any uh, avid readers of uh, Road CC may remember Kate from a recent edition of uh, Near Miss of the Day. So, Kate, you were involved. Uh, we featured you. You played a starring role, if that's the right word. In, <laughs> although I think maybe the taxi driver played the starring role in uh, the, the the incident we saw, which basically if it was Near Miss of the Day, Kate 149, if anybody wants to go back and check through the records, and uh, kind of, you were riding in a cycle lane. Was it with your child on the way to school? If that's right, I just I just picked her up. So oh. I was just picking my daughter up from school. So I'm a disabled cyclist. Um, two of my kids are also disabled. Um, and we cycle school runs every day. Um, we cycle to most clubs and that kind of thing. We do, I do drive as well. We've got um, there are six of us in the family. I've got a van because there's six people in a wheelchair. That means you need quite a lot of space. <laughs> Um, but mostly we can get around with an e-tandem and single bikes as well. Um, so that's how we do most of our driving. Well, not driving, cycling um, to, to get about. And then obviously separately from that, I work for Wheels for Wellbeing as well. So I'm a disabled cyclist and I work in disabled cycling. So that ends up with a bit of overlap going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and I think uh, I remember when we talked about uh, that near miss, if you want to see it, it's basically your on a road which has uh, a, you know, a dreaded painted cycle lane and there's a queue of traffic in the other direction because obviously this is around school pickup time yeah so um, it's well, because of the school pickup time yeah and and i think you told me that there's schools there's a lot of schools off this road yeah there are two schools yeah. off the road so they're not on the same street but they're just down side streets so you get a lot of school traffic going on yeah so there's a lot of school traffic you use it uh, every day with your children and in that case in near miss a day a taxi driver decided to basically use the lane you were traveling in to mm -hmm. go past in the wrong lane 
a long like in the in the video if you go and see it it's it's such a long line that you can't even see where it starts <laughs> you know and uh, and the taxi driver passed you and of course uh there's one of the things we do with the near miss a day series is we see what kind of punishment uh you know motors doing that kind of dangerous driving in which case it was coming at you at a fairly decent speed mm-hmm. on on a road adjacent to schools you know basically you're you're in a very narrow cycle lane as well and and he ended up with a warning letter just so yeah, yeah. so uh not the best but that kind of thing i think you talked about even on that road it's a busy road it's uh you know a slightly dangerous road especially in schools but the only kind of infrastructure cyclists or anybody you know wheeling or cycling to schools on that road has is a very narrow painted strip yeah i mean we've got the problem it's 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 something we see all over the country which is where you've got a cycle lane that's maybe a meter wide a bit less you've got half of that at least taken up with damage and um like the gutters and the drain covers and things so you can't ride on that um my handlebars are about 75 centimeters wide we've got two pairs of handlebars obviously because it's a tandem i'm riding you know you can't be fully in that cycle lane or against the curb there's there's just no way it's not safe and then we've got the highway code saying you need that 1.5 meter safe overtaking distance um and there is not space for that so having that paint line on the road just encourages drivers to think that it's okay as long as they're outside the line and they'll pass really really close you know you're getting passes within sort of 20 30 centimeters quite often because of the way the carriageway narrows it just encourages drivers to come past fast normally they come past fast on the correct side but no matter how you look at it, that road is dangerous. But there's this metre of cycle lane on either side. There are wide verges. There's loads of space. Most of the carriageways are actually quite wide. There's space to put in a two-way segregated cycle lane. It's a big, it's a big road. It's a major route into the city centre. You know, it's the perfect place to be putting in that cycle lane. Um, and instead, what we're seeing is the council saying, oh, no, it's all right for people to park on the double yellows. It's OK for people to block the pavements in case they're loading and unloading and allowing that all day. So you don't even necessarily have the paint cycle lane. Um, you don't even necessarily have a safe pavement. We quite often have parents having to walk out pushing buggies around vans into the road. And it's a 40 mile an hour road with houses down both sides. You know, you expect that kind of road to be 30 or maybe 20 miles an hour. So there could be so much done really quite cheaply and easily that would make the space much, much safer for people walking and wheeling and cycling. And it wouldn't make much of a difference to the drivers. You know, I've said I often drive up and down there as well. Um, and it wouldn't bother me in the slightest when I'm driving to be going at 20 miles an hour along those stretches. It would feel safe and reasonable. And it would just mean less time waiting at the junctions. It wouldn't even slow your journeys down. So for me, having that space that's safer, you'd get more people walking, wheeling and cycling, fewer feeling they have to drive because the roads are too dangerous, makes driving easier, makes cycling and you know being out meeting people easier. It could be so much better. And just a bit more consideration from drivers in the meantime would be really nice. Yeah, because, yeah, uh, you know, as you said, could it be easily kind of done? And, and one of the things is that kind of very narrow you know, painted cycle lane that you're on is narrow enough if you're, you know, riding a, a standard bike. You know, uh, but one of the things is, especially in your in your work in your daily life as well, uh, the the thing of what infrastructure do we have that actually is built for people using non-standard cycles or, you know, anything like that. Uh, 
Yeah. Is that one of the things you, in terms of what Wheels for Wellbeing does, how much does infrastructure play a role in what uh, the charity uh, talks about and, and, and the kind of barriers that people want in the cycle? Because that road would be a barrier to cycling for me, I think. It's a huge barrier, yeah. Um, and infrastructure is one of the things we talk about a lot because um, often places that are designed for safe cycling, that are traffic free, have barriers on them that mean that you can't get non-standard cycles through. So you've kind of got a double whammy. You can't, you're not safe on the road. Um, and, you know, the second half of that school pickup I do with my son next to me, he's autistic. He needs to ride to, we need to ride to a rest so that he feels safe enough from the traffic and can take instructions and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and yet when we're riding two abreast, we don't fit into those paint line cycle lanes. You know, I'm right out in the middle of the road when we're two abreast in primary, it blocks overtakes and we'll just pull over every now and then. And most drivers are really considerate. And then you get the odd one again, who'll just skim right past you. Um, and it's just really silly because they're having to go into the opposite carriageway anyway. They might as well go the whole way over. <laughs> it's not going to slow them down at all. So yeah, as Wheels for Wellbeing, we talk a lot about infrastructure um, making sure that we've got the one and a half meter gaps that you can approach in a straight line to get through anything, making sure surfaces are adequate for riding on, making sure that crossings are safe, making sure that there are continuous routes that go everywhere that people need to go. Because it's not all about getting along one major route or a leisure route or an X train track. It's about being able to make purposeful journeys every day. And that can mean going from any house to any other house, anyone's flats to anyone's other flat. So our guide to inclusive cycling includes things like um, parking. If you are living in a second story flat and you can't lift your bike, you need somewhere to store it at ground level. That's really convenient. That's as easy to get in and out of as a car parking space would be. Um, and we also need um, the costs to be recognised. So we quite often hear from cycling groups, cycling is really cheap. It's like, yeah, kind of. Um, if you need an adapted cycle, it can cost upwards of five grand. So a clip on hand cycle for a wheelchair will cost about five to eight thousand um, pounds if you need something really specialist and you're having to get it purpose built. But even um, any e-bike, you're looking at what a thousand pounds plus um, and probably quite a lot more to get something that's got the kind of battery range that you can really rely on. Because if you can't guarantee you're going to make it back, if you're somebody who's got a mobility impairment or something that affects your energy, you cannot afford for that battery to run out. Um, so accessing cycling is actually really expensive if you're disabled and then getting insurance as well. Um, you know, you're often only insured if you're locked up with a gold standard lock. A lot of those locks are very difficult for people to use, particularly if maybe they've only got um, one arm that works very well or they've got muscle weakness. So they might be able to cycle perfectly well, but not do all of the agility that's needed to use a really bad quality cycle stand with a really difficult lock that can just be an extra whole set of barriers even if the stands exist um and then we get problems with people sort of call it a confidence problem it's not a confidence mm. problem it's um fear around losing your benefits or being abused if you're out and about cycling and you're disabled um so people are worried that if they try cycling and somebody sees them trying to be active or if they can cycle, they find out they can and it's a really great way to get around, that still doesn't mean they can walk everywhere. It doesn't mean that they don't need to have other support in other areas of their life, but it can make it really difficult because our benefit system is so punitive and just sort of assumes that people are faking. So, you know, we know loads of people wear glasses Nobody would imagine telling somebody who wears glasses that if they take them off and do something, they must be faking. They've got perfectly good eyesight. They don't need the glasses. 
but we see that equivalent happening a lot for people with other disabilities. So if you're using a wheelchair or you're using crutches and you show that you can walk without them, even if it's only a very short distance, and realistically, if you're using a wheelchair, they're a pain, um, you will only be able to walk a very short distance if at all. But if people see you do that, you can get a lot of abuse. So people get really frightened about showing how capable they can be in public. And that's a really big barrier for disabled people just trying active travel. That's that's not something I even thought about but before really that's really quite eye-opening yeah because i i'm i'm sort of thinking that you know you get the the, the odd time that the odd the ta- a tabloid will run a story about someone who was claiming disability benefits and then they, here they are surfing or something and that people are literally worried they're going to be lumped in with that kind of um you know like dishonesty when really they're just trying to to get around uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been I've been told um, personally by the Department for Work and Pensions that I can't have a mobility impairment because I sound jovial. So yeah, I, I sound too happy to have a disability. And and in that that same thing, it said you've said you can cycle, so we reckon you can walk. Well, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I was just going to say, because one of the things you're talking about, uh, when you say all the you know different barriers and all sorts of different barriers, like you know in terms of even you know stuff that affects like as you said the confidence thing but the kind of like almost like stigma attached to cycling or uh you know with a disability but one of the things i was going to ask is what is like the government what are local councils doing but actually what well, i might flip that a wee bit and go the stuff that they're some of the stuff that local councils and authorities are actually putting in are are adding to what you're talking about like recently on the live blog we covered uh, a crossing in the northeast i can't actually remember exactly where it was but it uh said that all cyclists have to dismount to re- it was a, it was an act of travel it was designed as an act of travel crossing and cyclists were told they have to dismount because it wasn't designed safely or something for cyclists you know and, and you know and that kind of feeds into the thing of that uh, all people that can cycle can then walk across yeah. this and you know and i think those kind of inbuilt things that, as Jack said, you wouldn't even sometimes think. And it goes to show, are, you know, are local authorities thinking about people that need the cycle as part of their mobility? Well, so the really great things that we've seen happening are um, we've got LTM 120, the cycle infrastructure design, which has a lot of things in common with the Wheels for Wellbeing um, bits. Um, and we've seen Active Travel England formed where local authorities are supposed to be getting that guidance so they can make sure that what is being built should be fully accessible. But um, yeah, so there are great examples of good practice going in where crossings are being built that prioritise walking, wheeling and cycling, where we've got um, 20 mile an hour limits coming in in a lot of places that really make spaces safer. We've got the cycle superhighways in London, so connecting places up and making sure that you can then get off those cycle superhighways into places that have been calmed down. So there's less rat running. You've got some filters that make it safer to get through. You've got the mini Holland areas. So there, there's a lot of good practice going in and really experimenting because we're not used to this in the UK so much, making sure that um, we look at older good practice where we had places that had traffic filters. Um, I mean, I live on a street that's got a traffic filter down the end. It's been in place for at least 20 years. It was here before we moved in. Um, and just looking at how those have worked over time, making sure that we get the spaces done. So there is really good practice out there and there's a lot happening, but you're right that there are often assumptions where people just forget 
that you might not be able to dismount and push a cycle or you might be able to dismount and push it two steps but not the whole way across a crossing um and crossings are really interesting because they assume that you're going to be able to move at a certain speed for highway design there's an assumption that you can go fairly quickly um and that can be a really big barrier again for people who are disabled might not be able to cross at the speed that you're expecting if you've got wheels you might have to stop if the curb hasn't been done well enough so you stop in the carriageway and all the drivers are expecting you to keep moving and you don't you stop um so making sure you've got all the angles right so that people can get on and off a carriageway safely making sure the curbs are fully flush it's all there in the design guidance it's it's all laid out quite nicely and hopefully with active travel england checking through designs and making sure that education is happening for all the local authorities we should start seeing some real changes happening there for the better yeah absolutely um just uh on kind of things that are being done to to you know help that kind of aspect of everything uh is the we'll for wellbeing's current campaign is uh, my cycle my mobility aid right and it uh, could you tell us a bit about that and what you're actually trying to do with that and what is being done on the part of like the government uh, the police transport bodies that kind of thing to to recognize cycles as mobility aids well so this is a really um sort of recently launched or, or relaunched campaign for us my cycle my mobility aid and we're wanting the recognition in law and from designers and from the wider public that a lot of disabled people can and do cycle and that many more would be able to cycle if we made some alterations. So um, one of the really big things that we need is for cycles to be recognised as mobility aids. So the World Health Organisation recognises that tricycles are mobility aids already. But what we're saying is that even a standard bike can be being used as a mobility aid by somebody who's going to struggle to walk. And if you're using a cycle as a mobility aid, you can't be asked to get off it is one of the big things. So um, you won't be able to follow those dismount here signs, no cycling. You're going to need to be able to cycle the whole way to suitable cycle parking. You might need to take it through a station. So last week I needed to get to London. I had to use taxis because I couldn't get to the station and into the station's car parking or take a Brompton onto the train because I can't physically lift it and, or walk through the station and I needed my wheelchair. If the station would allow me to cycle through to the train, then I'd be able to ride. So it's that oh, you get all these extra expenses and things because um, disabled people are being excluded from active travel. So the My Cycle, My Mobility Aid campaign is about really raising the awareness of the changes that we need to infrastructure. And we've already talked about those, but also the changes to legislation, making sure that any mobility aid that somebody is using can be recognised as a mobility aid and that they will be um, helped to use it, enabled to use it in a way that works for them. So it's connecting up those routes, making sure that disabled people are able to use a cycle at walking speed. So not faster than walking speed where they need to use it in a pedestrian space and cannot dismount and push. Yeah. And what's the response been so far to the campaign? 
Um, well, at the moment, we're talking with other disabled people's organisations, making sure that we're not doing anything that is going to um, be negative for any other groups. So we're trying to really make sure that nobody is going to have a negative impact from this. Um, we're very well aware that a lot of um, groups of people with cognitive impairments or uh, sensory impairments, like uh, visual impairment charities and groups, will be able to give us a lot of information about the possible negative impacts of having things on, on pavements and in that kind of space and what we need to do to make sure that that's not going to be a problem so we don't want to ask for things that are going to cause other people issues but we're recognizing that cycles are very very like a mobility scooter in the way that they move and their size and they're a lot lighter than mobility scooters so just in terms of momentum and how dangerous they are well a tricycle is a lot less dangerous to a pedestrian um, than a mobility scooter is provided they're both moving at the same speed so this is you know really really critical with the speeds that you have to be going really slowly um, but we also want it the other way around, where mobility scooters at the moment aren't allowed in cycle lanes. Um, and not many people even know that's a rule, but we would like the laws to be changed so that people using the class three bigger mobility scooters are officially permitted into cycle lanes, that those are renamed as mobility lanes so that we've got this equity, the fairness about who's allowed in which spaces so that they can get everywhere with a low carbon, convenient means of transport for local journeys. So that was it, episode 45 of the Road CC podcast. Kate and Carlton were both excellent guests, obviously kind of related issues, but actually kind of fairly different, to be honest. Um, yeah, Kate's real life experiences of being a, somebody who's you know, as obsessed with cycling as any of us whilst whilst being disabled and the challenges that that holds was yeah as i as i mentioned really eye-opening and something that i think that a lot of us don't really tend to think about that much but obviously we should be thinking about it more and carlton's insight into everything that he knows around firstly 15 minute cities and secondly the just the madness surrounding them and how what is what should be a pretty uncontroversial topic has just been bastardized by nutters and just making this thing really unpleasant i mean as jack said in the um in, in the interview we've for th this whole thing started because we were originally approached by a counselor from we're not going to say where from uh and they had to cancel because they were getting threats well we we believe that they were getting threats and then we reached out to i don't know how many other counselors dozens all of them said the same thing that they didn't want to they kind of didn't you know the the the, the backlash that they would get from doing it even though uh, you know we aren't the biggest podcast in the world we know that we love our audience you know but we we know that they're you know we're not we're not exactly joe rogan um, and even that small level of kind of media coverage, they just didn't want to go there because of the difficulties that they knew that they would face from these kind of illogical conspiracy theorists. So hearing Carlton really explain that was, yeah, again, just interesting, but very depressing at the same time. So, yeah, I hope that you guys enjoyed it. This was genuinely one of my favourite ones, actually. I think this has been really 
yeah, I mean, it's had it's had Carlton talking about nutters and it's had Kate talking about you know, really, really good points that we really should be thinking about more when we are creating infrastructure in the future. So as always, if you guys want to get in touch, send us an email to podcast at road.cc or you can find us on social media if you just search for Road CC. So until next time, cycle safe. Bye.